Hello, this is the final episode of 2022, and in honour of that, we're having a look back at the last 12 months in the Middle East and North Africa, with the help of some special guests from the New Arab. My name is Hugo Goodridge, and for the last time this year, welcome to the New Arab Voice. It's been a busy year for Afghanistan, with new rulers, the country is moving forward to its next phase, but simultaneously has moved backwards. Joining us to discuss Afghanistan in 2022, it's the New Arab's Deputy News and Features Editor, Benjamin Ashraf. Thanks for joining us, Ben. Thanks for having me, Hugo. Ben, the Taliban started the year firmly in control of Afghanistan. How has their first full year in power gone? Well, Hugo, with the international community um, and NATO in particular switching their attention away from Afghanistan and, you know, almost absolving themselves from previous political responsibilities, um, the Taliban have, you know, therefore tightened their grip around the social and political fate of Afghanistan. Um, And so rather than a return to stability, Afghanistan has now entered into a new state of insecurity. Um, ISIS-K have renewed insurgency campaigns. ISIS-K, they are the Islamic State in Afghanistan, correct? That's right. And there's also been um, intermittent border skirmishes along the Durand line with Pakistani security forces. Uh, The number of IDPs, so that's internally displaced persons, has also rocketed to over 820,000. And the Hazara and Shia communities, both ethnic minorities in Afghanistan, face threats to their existence. Um, Also, the Taliban's pariah status has also aggravated a worsening humanitarian crisis in the country. The World Food Programme believes that 98% of the population doesn't have enough food to eat, um, and 25% of Afghanistan are now approaching famine levels of food insecurity. Also, the UNDP predicts that the annual income per capita will drop by as much as 30%, which means that the average Afghan makes just $350 per year. Um, unemployment is also believed to be at 40%. Um, and yet each of these indicators are linked to the withholding of Afghanistan's reserves and aid funding. Um, for example, the US are now in control of the, seven, of the country's $7 billion central bank reserves um, and the IMF have paused $400 million in funding. Uh, so it's worth noting that it's because of these measures that the Taliban is both struggling with cash flow um, and are now also frozen out of global financial systems and capital markets. At the social level, the sweeping promises of modernization initially offered by the Taliban's press detail after their return to power um, have also been largely rescinded. Press freedoms barely exist. 80% of girls are out of education, with the Taliban new turning on that decision. Um, And ironically, a ministry for the propagation of virtue and the prevention of vice has now been reinstated to police moral behaviour at the expense of the Ministry of Women's Affairs. So, Hugo, overall, the peace that binds Afghanistan has largely come at the expense of the peace of mind of the Afghan people, um, who suffer once more, if in different ways, to the US-led NATO occupation. Afghanistan is in desperate need of aid. Have they managed to restart that aid over the year? Well, Hugo, there were efforts. Um, At the end of January, a Taliban delegation led by Foreign Minister Amir Khan Mutaki travelled to Oslo in Norway and met senior figures from Britain, France and Norwegian foreign ministries. Uh, On their first visit to Europe since the fall of Kabul in uh, August 2021, uh, the Taliban sought to gain international recognition, which you know still eludes them, as well as the releasing of billions of dollars um, in Afghan central bank assets. 
For their part, the Western diplomats believed the talks would serve as an opportunity for Western nations to extract concessions from the Taliban. What concessions did they want? Well, primarily issues relating to human rights, uh, in particular those relating to women and minorities, such as the access to education, health services, the right to work and, and the freedom of movement. Um, as has been discussed, each of these has deteriorated since the Taliban returned to power. Well, I think they need to be held accountable and they have to deliver on some of these very clear expectations. The, the talks in Oslo were not about a concrete agreement and there was no signature, but there was, as far as I can hear from reports, uh, productive conversations between Afghans in civil society and the Taliban and between delegations from individual countries. That was Norway's Prime Minister speaking ahead of a UN Security Council meeting on Afghanistan. Uh, Ben, would we say these talks were a success? Regrettably, I can't say so. Um, Once again, promises were not kept. Uh, I'll give some details now. Uh, On March the 17th, the Taliban announced that schools would open for both boys and girls. But, but, you know, only five days later, on March the 23rd, uh, it was announced that girls would be banned from secondary schools, citing Islamic principles. These principles were laid out in a document, a 312-page manifesto entitled Al-Imarat al-Islamiyya wal-Nizamuha, which translates in Arabic to the Islamic, Islamic Emirate and its administration. So it served as a shift. Divine rather than man-made law, laws would now govern the system. And regrettably, again, Afghan women have bore the brunt of this revisionist form of, of theological governance. According to the International uh, Labour Organization, the participation of women in the professional sector has dropped from 22% to just 16%. 45% of girls interviewed were no longer attending schools, and that's compared with just 20% of boys. Uh, throughout 2022, uh, women have also been banned from entering parks, fun fairs, gyms and public baths, um, and their health has also worsened. Citing a report from Save the Children, uh, 26% of girls are now showing signs of depression when compared with 16% of boys. Um, and, and all these figures prove is that girls and women are disproportionately affected in, in, the, in Afghanistan run by the Taliban. Simply put, they're just missing more meals, they're more isolated, and they're just not as educated. Um, and it doesn't take, a, doesn't take a genius to realise that this is going to be catastrophic for the long-term future of the country. Uh, so much so that in November, the UN Special Rapporteur on Human Rights in Afghanistan said these restrictions could even amount to a crime against humanity. Uh, It's terrible. Uh, uh, Afghanistan did disappear for a while, but burst back onto the front pages around the world when the US conducted a drone strike in the centre of the capital, Kabul, in July. Uh, What happened there? Indeed. On the 31st of July 2022, influential al-Qaeda leader Ayman al-Zawahri was killed um, by a U.S. drone strike in in Kabul. On Saturday, at my direction, the United States successfully concluded an airstrike in Kabul, Afghanistan, that killed the emir of al-Qaeda, Ayman al-Zawahri. And his killing was surprising, not least because the U.S. conducted a drone strike in the Afghan capital, but also because the terrorist leader was in the Afghan capital in the first place. So how do we how do we see this? I mean, I'd say that his presence in Kabul capped off the complete failure of the US invasion of Afghanistan, entering Afghanistan under the pretense of removing the Taliban and prevent the country from being used as a base from terrorist groups. 21 years later, the Taliban are now back in power and al-Zawahri was found to be living a life of luxury. 
The fact that al-Zawahri was killed in the, in, in the neighborhood of Shirpur in Kabul was tragically ironic. The, the neighborhood was built to house U.S. contractors and was built predominantly with U.S. taxpayer money. And so, you know, this whole saga was proof, if any more was needed, of the cyclical nature of this conflict and the total redundance of the 20-year occupation. It's worth noting that Shia Portal now houses the Taliban elite. Ironic indeed. Looking forward, Ben, what do we say that 2023 holds for Afghanistan? Well, well, it's a tough question, but, um, you know, Afghanistan now exists in this kind of post-conflict setting um, and is now largely forgotten by mainstream news agencies, um, also kind of ideologically driven aid bodies and and general international policy deliberation. Um, We've seen that Russia's war in Ukraine has redirected eyes away from Afghanistan um, and this broad lack of attention, as we found um, throughout this conversation, has allowed the Taliban to rule with little accountability. I mean, to what extent efforts of normalisation with the regime will occur remains to be seen. Um, however, there will need to be there will need to be some level of compromise between international parties uh, and the Taliban to prevent prevent a, a catastrophic collapse. But the Taliban will have problems of their own. You know, national unity is likely to remain a problem. The Taliban remains ill-equipped to govern with limited resources, and and power continues to fragment. With limited cash flows, you know, the, the base, the ideological base and support of the Taliban is sure to be tested. Simply put, if there is no money to pay for security or administrators, one could envisage some form of mutiny. Meanwhile, Afghanistan will continue to be one of the world's humanitarian, worst humanitarian crises. 67% or two thirds of Afghanistan will require some level of humanitarian assistance in 2023. Um, the country is now entering its third year of drought like conditions and second year of just dire economic collapse. To put that into perspective, that's 28.3 million people, 10 million more than needed assistance in 2021. Food security is likely to remain rife and, and the climate remains unforgiving. So, so, Hugo, to sum up, unless both the West and the Taliban are able to swallow some kind of pride and come to the discussion table, uh, Afghanistan's torrid modern history is set to worsen further. Thanks for joining us, Ben. Thanks very much. To hear more about Afghanistan and the struggle for women's rights, you can listen to episode 11 from season three, or to hear more about Al-Qaeda and the killing of Ayman al-Zawahiri, check out season four, episode nine. Turkey has been at the epicentre of global political events this year. To get us up to speed with what's been happening... We're joined by New Arab journalist and producer of The New Arab Voice. It's Rosie McCabe. Hi, Rosie. Hi, Hugo. Rosie, at the beginning of the year, the biggest news story in Turkey was the crash of the Turkish lira. What happened there? Yes, inflation hit record high levels in Turkey this year, exceeding 80% by October and causing the lira to lose around 30% of its value against the US dollar this November. To go into more detail... Month on month, the price of clothing rose by 8.34%, while food prices rose around 5%. Annually, transport costs, including petrol prices, rose by 117%, while food prices bloated with a 99% increase. Turkey has long been a fast-growing economy with a habit of adopting unorthodox growth strategies. While President Erdogan's government was able to tame boom and bust cycles with a series of reform measures in the late noughties and 2010s, a period of economic instability emboldened by mismanagement has taken hold in the 2020s. 
Rebuking widely accepted fiscal rules, Erdogan has kept interest rates low, stoking inflation further. While Turkey's economy did grow this year at a predicted 5% due to foreign investment and growth prioritization, a poll revealed that as many as 94% of Turks are suffering because of currency depreciation. Arguably the biggest story of the year was Russia's invasion of Ukraine. How was Turkey impacted by that invasion? So for starters, while the lira appeared to have a few weeks of relative calm in early 2022, Russia's invasion of Ukraine sent shockwaves across the Turkish economy as it did for the global economy. Ankara's response to this was carefully calculated. Sandwiched between the East and the West, Turkey decided to tow a middle way, vocalising support for Ukrainian sovereignty and supplying lethal drones to Kyiv, while maintaining communications and building its trade with Russia. Do you think this middle way has worked out well for Turkey so far? Yes, I believe this Turkey-first strategy has served the interest of Ankara well, both domestically and internationally. Take, for instance, the Black Sea Grain Deal, which Ankara helped to negotiate alongside the UN in July. This is an agreement for the world. It will bring relief for developing countries on the edge of bankruptcy and the most vulnerable people on the edge of famine. And it will help stabilise global food prices, which were already at record levels even before the war, a true nightmare for developing countries. The agreement allowed for the exportation of food shipments from three key Ukrainian ports. Vessels will be monitored by a joint coordination centre hosted in Istanbul. Despite bucking sanctions on Russia, Turkey received high praise from the US and European allies for its efforts to stabilise global food prices. Even when President Putin withdrew from the deal in October, Erdogan was able to quickly get him back into the fold. This showcased Turkey's geopolitical strength as one of Moscow's largest trading partners and its growing role as a global trading hub between the East and the West. As well as having ties to the EU and Russia, Turkey is also still pretty entrenched in Syria. What's happening regarding Turkey's operations in Syria? So President Erdogan throughout this year has threatened to launch a new military operation in Syria. Ankara purported that the operation is a way to combat Kurdish terrorists and allow for the creation of safe zones for the return of Syrian refugees, of whom there are millions in Turkey. Now, Ankara launched a series of airstrikes on northern Syria and Iraq. It claimed the attacks were in response to a deadly explosion in Istanbul, which is blamed on the Kurdistan Workers' Party and its allies. So far, there hasn't been a new invasion, but Turkey continues to express an interest in deepening its control over its southern neighbour. If Turkey does launch a fresh offensive in Syria, it's very likely there will be an escalation of violence in Syria, putting more civilians at risk. And Kurdish-US relations would come under further strain, given America's strategic alliance with Kurdish-led groups in northwestern Syria. Throughout the year, in response to the Russian invasion, NATO has been seeking to strengthen its hand by adding more members, which in turn has angered Turkey. What got them so riled up in 2022? Turkey, buoyed by its newfound international prowess amid the Ukraine war, blocked the ascension of Sweden and Finland into NATO, a move triggered by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The reason for the obstruction is that Ankara has long considered Kurdish opposition groups such as the PKK to be terrorist organisations. While many EU members have branded the PKK as a terrorist group, Sweden and Finland had not. Turkey accused the two Nordic countries of providing funding and political support to the Kurdish organisation. 
Ankara wanted this alleged support to halt immediately in return for Turkey's NATO vote. While a last-minute agreement between Ankara and the Nordic countries was reached in June, which included issues such as the designation of Kurdish groups more recently, Turkey has escalated its demands. This December, it called for the extradition of an exiled Turkish journalist, a move that was blocked by Swedish courts. Keen to avoid any escalation of conflict, some analysts argue that Turkey may use the threat of a Syria invasion to extract even more concessions from Washington and its European allies. And going forward, what can we expect in Turkey in 2023? Next year, the big event taking place in Turkey will be the parliamentary and presidential elections. The question here is whether President Erdogan will maintain his iron fist grip on power. The outcome of these elections will depend on the Turkish lira crisis and how Ankara manoeuvres itself internationally to serve its own domestic and security interests. An alarming precursor to events, however, has been the crackdown on opposition figures. The Istanbul mayor was sentenced to two and a half years in prison this month for insulting electoral officials. It's widely believed that Erdogan and his governing Justice and Development Party facilitated this verdict against their rival. Currently, Erdogan's AKP party is leading in the polls. But I think the real test for Turkey in 2023 won't be in the ballot box. It will be whether its democratic institutions and principles are respected and strengthened. Will there be space for opposition and dissenting voices in these elections? Will the Lira crisis be resolved through consensus? Will Turkey respect the sovereignty of others or prioritise its own security? And if not, do international allies have the capacity to hold Turkey to account given its involvement in the Ukraine-Russia war and Syria? To that, I don't know, and I'm not sure we'll get the answer that we want to hear. Thanks for joining us, Rosie. Thanks for having me. For more on Turkey's economic woes, you can listen to our very first episode of the year. That was season three, episode one, to hear about how Turkey has been impacted by the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Listen to season three, episode five. Or for more on Turkey's involvement in northern Syria and prospects for an invasion by Ankara, listen to season three, episode 15. Over the past 12 months, Israel and Palestine have witnessed some monumental changes and upheaval, in addition to a continuation of the brutal apartheid policies that have developed over the years. Here to talk about 2022 in Israel and Palestine, we're joined by the New Arabs correspondent in East Jerusalem, Ibrahim Hosseini. Thanks for joining us, Ibrahim. Thanks for having me. Israel started 2022 with one relatively new government, but has ended the year with a whole new government. Uh, Can you tell us what happened there? That's right, Hugo. During 2022, the governing coalition that secured the top seat of former Israeli Prime Minister Bennett saw a number of defections. That eventually pushed them over the edge. Um, The death knell came when two Palestinian lawmakers within the coalition refused to recertify Um, a measure that upholds Israeli law for illegal settlers across the West Bank. Um, The two coalitions uh, from the left voted against the extension because they opposed the dual system, which favors Israelis in the West Bank. One of them is a member of the Arab Islamic Party, uh, dubbed Ram in Hebrew, and the other member uh, from the leftist Meretz Party. 
Um, the law was passed after the 1967 Six-Day War to circumvent international laws restricting the extension of an occupier's legal system into occupied territory. Um, on June 20th, Bennett announced that his governing coalition would dissolve, ensuring that Israelis would be heading back to the polls for the fifth time in less than four years. And what happened at the election? Okay, so in the run-up to the election, it was expected that the voter turnout among Palestinians who are allowed to vote would be very low. Rather than running on a joint list as has previously happened, the main Arab parties ran separately, which raised fears about a rout at the ballot box. Polls in the country suggested that Israel would see the return of Benjamin Netanyahu, but that he would be returned to office with narrow majority. And on the night of the election and in the days counting after, he did come through as winner. Netanyahu's right-wing Likud party had won 32 seats in Israel's 120-seat parliament, combined with 18 from the ultra-Orthodox Jewish parties and 14 from the rising extreme right-wing alliance called Religious Zionism. That gave the bloc supporting Netanyahu 64 seats. And religious Zionism, who exactly are they? Yes, they are an alliance of three extreme parties. They're fiercely anti-Palestinian pro-settlers who make no effort to hide their intentions of removing Palestinians from the country. They are also anti-LGBTQ. One of the members of the fascist alliance is Itamar Ben-Gvir. He's an extremist known for his racist anti-Palestinian rhetoric and incendiary calls for Israel to annex the entire West Bank. In an extremely worrying development, Hugo, he is seeking to be named as public security minister. This post would put him in charge of the police. Ben-Gvir has called repeatedly for the security services to use more force in repressing Palestinians such as further relaxation of the gun laws, as if the Israeli forces are not trigger-happy as it is. Another is providing a shield for police officers from legal questioning. Um, As well as unwelcome returns in the world of politics, uh, Palestine also said a tragic goodbye this year when Shireen Abu Akleh was murdered. Um, Ibrahim, who was Shireen and how did she die? Yes, Hugo, a sad incident. Um, Shireen was a Palestinian journalist who worked for Al Jazeera, a household name, not just in Palestine, but in the Arab world as well. Um, And for many, she had been an important source of information for many years. On, On May 11th, Shireen went to cover a raid by Israeli troops in the occupied West Bank city of Jenin. During that raid, she was shot in the head despite being clearly identifiable as a journalist. At the time, witnesses said that it was a sniper's bullet that killed her. Um, The Palestinian Authority called Shireen's killing an execution and part of an Israeli effort to obscure the truth about its occupation of the West Bank. Israel pushed back against these claims, but evidence against them piled up quickly. 
In the days that followed, Shireen's murder was condemned by the UN, EU and US, who urged that an investigation be held but really failed to push for any genuine accountability. And even after her death, uh, Israel continued their assaults, correct? That's right, Hugo. On the Friday after she was killed, mourners carried her coffin from the hospital in East Jerusalem. During this procession, Israeli police charged at and brutally assaulted pallbearers carrying Abu Akhle's casket. In horrifying scenes, officers fired tear gas and stun grenades, kicked and beat Palestinians with batons as they attempted to snatch national flags away. The assault almost caused the coffin to be dropped to the floor. Police claimed stones began to be thrown at officers before they were forced to use riot dispersal means. But the footage broadcast by Al Jazeera showed peaceful mourners, including coffin bearers, being attacked without any signs of provocation. And uh, what were the other major developments in Israel that we saw this year? It wasn't so much of a development, but more of a continuation and acceleration of the apartheid violence that has sadly been seen in the occupied territories for years now. The attacks by Israeli forces continued across the West Bank and in the, and in the run-up to the Israeli election, illegal Israeli settlers groups were responsible for much of the violence. This included cutting down olive trees, attacking shops and homes, throwing rocks and shootings. Israel also conducted yet another assault on Gaza. Between the 5th and 7th of August, they launched some 147 airstrikes against Gaza. This resulted in the death of at least 49 Palestinians, including 17 children, according to the Gaza Health Ministry. And looking forward, Ibrahim, what can we expect in Israel and Palestine in 2023? I'm not optimistic at all. This happened under the so-called government of change without Netanyahu and Ben Gvir and Smotrich in power. Now, uh, with the with the onset of the new government uh, led by Netanyahu and Ben Gvir and Smotrich, we can only expect more assaults, unfortunately. Thanks for that, Ibrahim. My pleasure. To hear how Israel has pushed back against Amnesty International's report on apartheid Israel, you can listen to Season 3, Episode 6, or you can check out our episode on the struggles of reconstruction in Gaza. That's Season 3, Episode 10. In Season 3, Episode 13, we examined the murder of journalist Shireen Abu Akleh and remembered her life and work. In Season 4, Episode 11, we examined how big tech companies in the US were seeking to silence Palestinian activists. And finally, in Season 5, Episode 2, we took a deep dive into the recent Israeli elections and the rise in settler violence in the West Bank. Iran has witnessed monumental shifts and events this year. Here to help us break it all down, we're joined by new Arab journalist Ali Abbas Ahmadi. Thanks for joining us, Ali. Thanks for having me. Uh, plenty has happened in Iran over 2022, but how did it all begin? 
So 2022 for the Iranians started pretty much as 2021 had ended with intense talks about a new nuclear deal. And uh, did they get the deal? Well, talks in Vienna were in full swing at the start of the year with hopes that a deal could be reached. Uh, on January 14th, the EU foreign policy chief, Jose Borrell, said that reaching, a co- reaching an accord is possible and added that a deal could be concluded in the next few weeks. And by the beginning of February, the Iranian side was reporting that they had almost reached a deal with the European countries. But then talks uh, repeatedly stumbled and faltered throughout the year. In September, Europe accused Iran of continuing to, quote, escalate its nuclear program way beyond any plausible civilian justification. In October, a report by the International Atomic Energy Agency, or IAEA, said that Iran was rapidly expanding its ability to enrich uranium with advanced centrifuges at its underground plant at Natanz. And then the following month, Iran announced that they began producing uranium enriched to 60% at its Fordow plant. So in short, they did not get a deal, and the chances for a deal are less likely than ever. So what were the reasons why the deal collapsed? Um, much of it came down to sanctions. Iran wanted the removal of sanctions and for the IRGC to be removed from the international terrorism watch list before they would agree to a deal. The US in particular refused to lift any sanctions until the deal was agreed. And then the war in Ukraine and Iran's relations with Russia did not help bring the two sides together. A 2022 did see some diplomatic breakthroughs with Iran, though. Yes, to a certain extent. On March 16th, we got the welcome news that Nazanin Zaghari Radcliffe and Anusha Shuri had been released from prison in Iran and were set to fly back to the UK. Nazanin had served five years in prison, while Anusha had served four. Well, first of all, it's fantastic to see Anusha and Nazanin come off the plane safely back in Britain for the first time in years and that is truly fantastic for everybody and I think everybody across the country understands that. I've met the families... Former Foreign Minister and Brief Prime Minister Liz Truss speaking. Why were they being held in the first place? Uh, Nazanin and Anoushe were victims of hostage diplomacy. Iran had claimed that the UK owed Iran £400 million over the sale of tanks to Iran before the Islamic Revolution in 1979, but then they were never delivered. Uh, Nazanin had been arrested in 2016 and imprisoned ever since, while Ashuri was arrested in 2017 on charges of spying and spent four years at the notorious Evan prison. They were both victims of a sort of hostage diplomacy regularly used by Iran to gain concessions from other countries particularly Western ones. And what led to their release? The UK confirmed that they paid the debt, all the £400 million. The question then became, why did it take so long? Um, That's a question that has yet to be answered. Certainly a welcome bit of good news, but uh, I suppose it's not the biggest news from Iran this year. No, not at all. By far the most consequential event in Iran this year has been the ongoing protests that have swept the country. They erupted after the killing of Masha Amini, also known by her Kurdish name, Gina Amini. Amini was picked up off the street in mid-September by Iran's notorious morality police for allegedly wearing her mandatory headscarf incorrectly. 
While in their custody, she was reportedly abused and beaten. Amini was then transferred to hospital where she fell into a coma and died. The protests began more or less immediately and popular anger spilled onto the streets all across the country. And how did the authorities respond to the protests? They responded brutally and continue to respond brutally to this day. According to human rights activists in Iran, at least 495 people have been killed, including 38 women and 68 children, and a further 18,426 have been arrested. The most gruesome day was on September 30th, when the Iranian regime opened fire on protesters in the city of Zahedan, killing at least 90 people. And who have they been targeting in these crackdowns? Everyone, really. Um, Students and women have been leading the protests and have certainly been targeted by the regime, but also Iran's ethnic minorities, including the Kurds, Baluch, Baha'i and many others. It's certainly been a busy year for Iran then. What would we say that 2023 holds for the country? Well, I think the biggest story is the protests, and I think that's going to dominate the news going forward in the new year as well. So I think the protests could go several ways. They could potentially fizzle out on their own or be made to fizzle out by the government if it makes some minor concessions, as has happened before and in other countries in the neighbourhood. Or they could respond even more violently to the point where people are just too scared to take to the streets anymore. But I guess the hopeful answer would be the fall of the Islamic Republic. And remember, it might look unlikely at this stage, but if anything happens to Ayatollah Khamenei, who has been rumoured to be sick, then that would add a lot of fuel to this fire. And I think that would be a welcome celebration in the short term. But if any other revolutions in the neighbourhood are anything to go by, um, that could lead to just prolonged violence, more turmoil, and a whole host of other international players getting involved. And all of this is, of course, amid a very uncertain economic backdrop, as the noose of sanctions against Iran and top officials grows even tighter. Thanks for joining us, Ali. Thanks a lot for having me, Hugo. For more on Iran, you can listen to Season 3, Episode 8, for our exclusive interview with freed prisoner Anusha Shuri, or Season 4, Episode 4, where we delve into Russian-Iranian relations, and Season 4, Episode 13, and Season 5, Episode 6, which both examine the ongoing protests in Iran. The Russian invasion of Ukraine has hit Egypt particularly hard, adding to their existing troubles. Here to fill us in on Egypt this year is the New Arab's deputy editor, Nadine Talat. Welcome, Nadine. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, Nadine, what happened in Egypt in 2022? Between the slow recovery from the COVID-19 pandemic, a prolonged financial crisis and the global disruptions caused by Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Egypt has found 2022 to be financially difficult. Egypt is the world's largest importer of wheat, which is a staple in feeding its population of more than 100 million, and the skyrocketing price has severely affected the country's budget. In the previous year, Egypt spent $2.7 billion on wheat. This year, it will spend $4.4 billion. Of the wheat it imports, 85% comes from Russia and Ukraine. 
the wheat shortages and rising costs prompted the government to request a $500 million loan from the World Bank to buy wheat in June. Similarly, the annual cost of Egypt's oil imports rose from $6.7 billion to $11.2 billion. Throughout the year, much-needed foreign currencies flowed out of Egypt, devaluing the local currency. According to experts, the Egyptian pound lost between 20 to 25% of its value to the US dollar in 2022. All of this, of course, means misery for the Egyptian people, a third of whom already live in poverty. Food prices have risen dramatically, and in November, inflation jumped to 18.7%, a five-year high, pushing more and more Egyptians into poverty. It wasn't all bad economic news in Egypt in 2020, though. Um, There was also some terrible human rights news. That's right. During 2022, Egypt continued and accelerated its descent into authoritarian rule. Throughout the year, numerous stories of appalling human rights violations came from Egypt, but they were probably best exemplified with the case of Ala Abdel Fattah. Ala is an Egyptian-British blogger, political activist, and one of 60,000 political prisoners in Egypt. His most recent series of incarcerations started in 2019, when he was arrested on unknown charges and later accused of spreading fake news. In 2021, he was sentenced to five years in prison. In April of this year, Alat began a hunger strike in protest at being kept in solitary confinement. He demanded access to UK consular services, which were never granted. By the middle of June, he was still on hunger strike, and his family expressed fears that he might die, having survived on nothing but water and rehydration salts for weeks. We hope that the incredible global attention on Alat's case and the tens of thousands of people who are now standing by him will lead to his release. Ale came close to death inside, but decided to reach for life. He will have no choice but to resume his hunger strike imminently if there continues to be no real movement on his case. In November, after six months of hunger strike, he escalated his strike and stopped drinking water to coincide with the beginning of the COP27 conference when all eyes were on Egypt. His family spoke of their fears that he was being tortured and force-fed. They subsequently demanded proof of life from the Egyptian authorities. On November 10th, the Egyptian authorities announced that Ala had received, quote, medical intervention with the knowledge of a judicial authority, suggesting that he had indeed been force-fed, or at least rehydrated intravenously. On November 15th, Ala said in a letter to his family that he had ended his hunger strike without providing greater detail. Numerous lawmakers from the UK and the EU have called for Ala's release, but to this day, the Egyptian authorities have ignored all requests and the political activist remains behind bars with countless other people. In spite of their human rights record, Egypt, uh, as you mentioned, was chosen to host this year's COP conference. How did that go for the Egyptians? By hosting this year's climate conference, Egypt, itself a victim of climate change, was hoping to rehabilitate its image on a global scale and position itself as a leader of the global south in environmentalism. This COP, which was dubbed as the African COP, put a real focus on the issue of inequality in emissions and centered the debate for compensation to be paid by richer nations, who are responsible for most of global emissions, to poorer nations, who are feeling the impact of climate change more severely. In addition, Egypt was hoping that hosting the climate conference would gain it international legitimacy and strategic partnerships with Europe, and position it as a bridge between the global north and south. It was also hoping for a boost in tourism and international investments. However, 
All of that was overshadowed by Egypt's troubling human rights and environmental record, which includes regularly detaining and harassing climate activists and advocacy organizations. In the lead up to COP27, Egypt only intensified its crackdown on dissent, and during the conference, protests were only allowed in a very specific area with prior permission. Except for a landmark agreement to create a loss and damages fund, COP27 failed to secure any meaningful agreements on climate change. Ultimately, the conference did more to expose Egypt's authoritarian rule than towards any positive rebranding. I particularly welcome the agreement of the parties to include a new agenda item on funding arrangements to respond to loss and damage. This creates, for the first time, an institutionally stable space on the formal agenda of the COP and the Paris Agreement to discuss the pressing issue of funding arrangements needed to deal with ex existing gaps in responding to loss and damage. That was Sama Shukri, Egyptian Foreign Minister and President of COP27. Uh, so going forward, Nadine, what can we expect in Egypt in 2023? Well, a recent IMF deal will probably do little to ease economic troubles, valued at only $3 billion. The conditions of this deal push privatization of the economy and may challenge the power of Egypt's military sector. The IMF predicts that Egypt's economic growth will slow in 2023 to just 4.4%. Inflation, which is already at 20%, will likely rise further unless any meaningful changes are made in fiscal policy. This will push the country closer to a full recession. While Egypt's economic troubles are deeply rooted and chronic, these realities, along with continued austerity measures, will likely push more and more people further into poverty or at least economic precarity. Regarding Egypt's political situation, there have not been meaningful changes or challenges to the status quo to suggest that political repression will ease in 2023. In fact, these grim realities, coupled with the lack of prospects for the future, have pushed many Egyptians to leave the country in search for a better life. The number of Egyptian nationals reaching European shores skyrocketed in 2022 and will likely continue to increase, despite a recent deal signed between Egypt and the EU to strengthen border security. Of course, there is always a possibility that economic and political conditions will worsen to the point of sparking some kind of popular uprising. In November, calls spread on social media for protest, but security forces quickly carried out mass arrests and eventually shut it down. Thanks for that, Nadine. No problem. To hear more about how grain shortages and the ongoing Russian invasion of Ukraine is affecting Egypt, you can listen to Season 4, Episode 8, and to get the lowdown on everything that happened at this year's COP27 in Sharm el-Sheikh, check out Season 5, Episode 3. Throughout 2022, Iraq has continued to find its way in a post-conflict environment and encountered numerous struggles along the way. To guide us through Iraq over the past 12 months, we're joined by the New Arabs Iraq correspondent, Dana Garib. Hi, Dana. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. The major political crisis that erupted in Iraq in 2021 has continued into 2022. Um, what are the major developments that we've seen this year? Uh, at the start of the year, on January 9th, uh, the parliament met uh, to swear in members of the parliament and re-elect influential Sunni politician Muhammad al-Husi as speaker. Uh, however, when it came to the issue of forming a government and deciding which bloc uh, held the majority in parliament, things quickly fell apart and the 
session ended with member of the parliament uh, fighting on the floor. According to the Iraqi constitution, uh, a president must be elected within 30 days of the election uh, of a parliament speaker. But that deadline came and went uh, with lawmakers uh, failing to agree on a consensus candidate. These disagreements uh, continued with various political parties putting forward their desired candidate for the presidency. Effort to fill this void were dealt a heavy blow uh, on June 13th, when all 73 MPs from Muqtada al-Sad's bloc resigned from the parliament and were then uh, subsequently replaced. Uh, after this, the coordination framework bloc, uh, led by former Iraqi Prime Minister Nur al-Maliki, grew to 130 seats in the parliament. Uh, and did that put an end to the crisis? Uh, definitely no. F- uh, Far from it. The coordination framework bloc in, is primarily made of uh, runback uh, parties. And uh, uh, on July 27, followers of Muqtada al-Sadr, angered by the Iranian influence, uh, breached the 45th Green Zone in Baghdad and the Iraqi parliament. Uh, al-Sadr called on its supporters to go home. A few days after the storm parliament, on August 3rd, uh, al-Sadr called for snap elections, but uh, by the end of the month, on the 29th, uh, he announced that he would be retired from politics. His supporters were uh, undeterred, uh, and later that day, stormed the presidential palace government building in the fortifying green zone. During the clashes with armed security forces, as well as uh, uh, run-backed Shia militias, at least 30 people were killed, mostly being supporters of al-Sadr. At the beginning of September, uh, lawmakers met for further negotiations with no success. Uh, but on uh, October 13th, the parliament gathered and finally elected Abdul Latif Rashid Akurd as the country's new president. Rashid then tasked Muhammad Shia al-Sudani uh, with forming a government and becoming prime minister. Uh, Despite uh, being asked, uh, Muqtada al-Sadr has said that he would not serve in uh, the government. Uh, The new prime minister, al-Sudani, had the backing of the coalition for the administration of the state, which is an alliance of powerful pro-Iran Shia factions, Sunni factions, uh, led by uh, Parliament Speaker Mohammed al-Busi and uh, the two main uh, Kurdish parties, the Kurdistan uh, Democratic Party, KDP, and the Patri- Patriotic Union of Kurdistan, PUK. And has this new government managed to achieve anything this year? Uh, no. Uh, so far, Sudani almost failed to fulfill uh, his government agenda. Uh, the Iraqis really are very angry as the cabinet failed to send the uh, annual budget to the parliament to vote on. Uh, despite Iraq's uh, assets from the foreign currency increased uh, to nearly 100 uh, billion US dollars, thanks to the rise of uh, global oil prices, Iraqs are suffering from uh, high unemployment rates, poor services, rising food prices, and increasing ISIS attacks against the Iraqi security forces, as well as the civilians, the Iraqi youth, uh, are demanding uh, employment opportunities. Uh, 
but the prime minister uh, Sudani uh, can't do uh, any new appointments unless the uh, the budget bill passed by the parliament. Mm. In 2022, climate change also came calling on Iraq with pretty devastating consequences. Uh, what were the environmental damages seen over the past 12 months? Uh, yeah, the biggest damages were sand and drought. Uh, in April and May, uh, the country was hit by a series of intense sandstorms. At least uh, 5,000 people were hospital- hospitalized from the storms, with 2,000 2, of the cases alone recorded in the capital city of Baghdad. Uh, these storms were particularly bad for those people who already have uh, existing uh, respiratory pr- problems. The country was again hit in June. In part, uh, these storms were caused by a different environmental, uh, environmental problem, which is uh, drought. In 2022, river levels were down 60% compared to the last year. Uh, for farmers, the lack of water has shrunk the yield from crops and pushed them to the edge. In uh, 2021, Iraq produced uh, 4.2 million tons of wheat, according to the Agricultural Ministry. But uh, for this year, the, they harvest less than uh, 3 million tons. Uh, this, in turn, has pushed the country to have a greater reliance on uh, foreign imports. Uh, in April of this year, uh, uh, there was a sad uh, visual reminder of what uh, a drought can do when Lake Sawa in uh, Muthana province, uh, once a popular tourist destination and a heaven for uh, biodiversity, completely dried up uh, due to climate change and uh, overuse. And going forward, what can we expect in Iraq in 2023? Uh, yeah. In uh, 2023, we can expect new political uh, crisis, uh, renewed protests by Southern loyalists and uh, other opposition parties, uh, mm, fresh Iranian and Turkish uh, military aggression against Iraq's sovereignty, and the deterioration of the environmental issues. Uh, Mohammed Al-Halbusi, speaker of the Iraqi parliament, uh, recently during a uh, an interview with Al-Rashid Iraqi Satellite Channel has indicated to this to the political process. He cautioned that uh, the political process in Iraq would totally collapse uh, if the pro-Iran sh- Shiite factions uh, in the coordination framework will not respect the, its agreements or their agreements with the uh, other political sides, with the Kurds, with the Sunnis. Uh, Sudan's cabinet's tenure is f- for one year. Uh, in order to pave the way for new uh, provincial and parliamentary elections after amending uh, the country's election uh, at the parliament. However, the Saudis, as well as, well as the independent lawmakers, uh, I'm sure uh, they would reject any amendment that uh, they might see as serving the agendas of pro-Iran Shiite factions. Uh, accordingly, the Saudis will take the streets again if the elections are not held by October uh, 2023. Dana, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. If you want to hear more about the political crisis that engulfed Iraq in 2022, 
you can listen to Season 4, Episode 2. Both Lebanon and Syria have been in and out of the news for much of 2022 for a variety of reasons, although generally not good ones. Here to give us a roundup of 2022 in the Levant is the New Arabs, Lebanon and Syria correspondent and friend of the podcast, Will Christou. Thanks for joining us, Will. Good to be back. Uh, Starting with Syria, Will, Assad's brutal rule over the country continues, um, but there are parts that remain outside his control still. What have been the major moments of the conflict in Syria this year? So the front lines in Syria have largely remained unchanged since March 2020. And and that's when Turkey briefly pushed into northwest Syria and fought the regime before Russia played peacemaker. This year was no different. Uh, No major battles took place. However, the peace remains tenuous, particularly in the country's northeast. And it's possible we're going to see a confrontation there in the new year. After the horrific bombing in Istanbul's Taksim Square in November, which left at least six people dead, Turkey stepped up its bombing campaign in northeast Syria. Um, and the country has placed the blame for the Taksim Square attack on the PKK, which the Kurdish leadership in northeast Syria is connected to, and Turkey's promised an invasion in retaliation. So far, Russian and U.S. diplomacy has staved off a Turkish assault, but the final decision really lies with Turkey. There was a fairly major development related to Syria outside the country as well this year um, in a German courtroom. What happened there, Will? Exactly. Um, At the beginning of this year, Anwar Raslan was convicted by a German court in Koblenz of crimes against humanity for his actions during the Syrian conflict. And the court found him guilty of multiple counts of torture, severe deprivation of liberty, rape and sexual coercion, dangerous bodily harm, hostage taking and the sexual abuse of prisoners. And for all these crimes, he was handed a life sentence. And now this was an important moment for justice in the Syrian conflict which rarely sees accountability, and also a win for the principles of international justice. Uh, I, am, I am so happy. I am so happy because today it's victory. Victory for justice as principle. It's victory for victims here who can, can come and for the victims who couldn't came here. It's victory for Syria and future of Syria. That was Anwar al-Buni, Syrian human rights lawyer, speaking outside the court after the verdict. So, Will, who is Anwar Raslan, and why was he being tried in a German court? Raslan was a former Syrian colonel who uh, led a unit of Syria's General Intelligence Directorate at the notorious Branch 251, which has always been known for its horrific torture. In 2014, Ruslan was granted asylum in Germany. But after being recognized by one of his former victims, he was arrested by the authorities in 2019 and formally charged in March of 2020. Now, in order to try him, Germany's invoked the principle of universal jurisdiction, which states that a foreign individual can be tried in a foreign court for a crime committed in a jurisdiction outside of that very court, especially if the crimes are particularly serious. And in Ruslan's case, this means torture. It's a controversial legal principle, and not all countries implement it. But in this instance, Germany did, and it did so successfully. Since the conviction of Ruslan, Germany has continued to open cases against Syrian officials accused of war crimes. Over to Lebanon, and at the end of 2021, the country was 
struggling through an economic quagmire. Uh, have we seen things improve at all over 2022? Uh, nope. Hugo, quite, quite the opposite. Lebanon's collapse might be out of the news, but it's proceeding steadily, taking with it the former middle class's population savings and dignity. In 2022, we saw the country hit hard by the global inflation crisis after the Ukraine war. According to the World Bank, Lebanon was the hardest hit country in the world when it came to food inflation. And across the board, living standards are continuing to drop. The value of the national currency has also dropped to an all-time low of 44,000 lira to the dollar, a decline of 45% from the beginning of the year. Meanwhile, the country's political class does not seem to have any sense of urgency and has not passed a single reform. There's a very clear roadmap put out by the IMF through which Lebanon can access international funding. But in 2022, like the previous three years before it, we've seen a political class completely uninterested in solving the country's worsening crisis. Now, there was a bit of optimism in May when elections brought in an unprecedented number of independent candidates to the parliament. However, since then, the independent candidates have turned to infighting and bickering and have not been able to pass a single piece of meaningful reform. And those hopes have faded. In a pretty clear sign of how desperate people are and how little faith they have in the authorities, Lebanon has witnessed a number of bank heists over 2022. And what's unusual about these heists is that these are not people trying to steal money, but rather just access their own deposits through force, deposits that were frozen by banks at the beginning of the crisis. And there's been more than a dozen successful or attempted heists in the last year. Finally, to make things even worse, Lebanon is facing a double political vacuum, ending the year without a president or a government. This year also brought news of a pretty historic deal uh, between Lebanon and Israel. Can you explain what happened there? Yeah, so on October 27th, Israel and Lebanon signed a maritime agreement that had been brokered by the U.S. And this is a deal that's been over 10 years in the making. The deal hopes to end the territorial dispute in the eastern tip of the Mediterranean Sea, setting boundary lines on gas and oil exploration. Now, both countries will be able to start exploring and extracting hydrocarbons held in reserves along their borders. And these are estimated to be valued in the billions. For Lebanon, in particular, this could be a major boost, both for the country's chronic energy shortage and for its economy. But it is important to note that Lebanon will not see a profit from gas extraction for another seven years or so. And now, the agreement also has political implications for the two countries, who are still technically in a state of war. Critics of the deal in Lebanon argue that it's a de facto recognition of the state of Israel, and actually the former Israeli PM Lapid sort of gloated as he signed the agreement that Lebanon was doing exactly that, recognizing Israel. But recognition or no recognition, one thing is for sure. The existence of the maritime deal reduces the chances for conflict between Israel and Hezbollah going forward. Interesting. Uh, so going forward, well, what can we expect in Lebanon in 2023? You know, Hugo, I wish I had good news to tell you or something good to say, but probably nothing good. Things are probably going to get worse. The root of the problem in Lebanon, and, and it's been the root of the problem for the last three years, uh, the root of the problem is really that you have a political class that has no incentive to improve the situation in the country. And like I said before, the IMF and others have laid out clear guidelines for reform that Lebanon needs to make. But three years on from the beginning of the crisis, Lebanon has adopted exactly zero of those reforms. Now Lebanon is entering the new year without a president, and without one, the country cannot form a new government. The country's parliament has held 10 consecutive rounds of voting to find a new president, but no clear front runner has emerged. 
It's unlikely that a president will be voted in until at least February. But also, it's very possible that the presidential vacancy will not be filled and will continue deep into next year. Basically, Lebanon won't have a president until the five or six men that control the country come to a consensus. And right now, they're unwilling to do so. And everything in terms of reform and solving this crisis will be on hold until they do. So, again, I wish I had good news for you, but I don't. In 2023, expect deadlock in Lebanon and an even worse humanitarian and economic situation. Thanks very much for that, Will. My pleasure. To hear more about the trial of Anwar Razlan and post-conflict accountability, uh, check out Season 3, Episode 3 for the lowdown on what Lebanon's most recent elections mean for the country. You can listen to Season 3, Episode 12. And also check out our three-part special on Lebanon featuring Will Christou that starts with Season 4, Episode 5. That's all for this episode, this season, and this year. From all of us at the New Arab Voice, we want to thank everyone who has shared their stories and insights over the past 12 months. And we want to thank you for joining us for this season. Your support means a lot to us. We've covered a lot this year from every corner of the region. Some of those things we spoke about today, but there's plenty more. We examined the Hirak movement in Algeria, Uyghur Muslims in China, the civil war in Yemen, monarchies in the MENA region, attacks on journalists, illegal wildlife trafficking, and much, much more. You can listen to any of our previous episodes on all major podcast platforms. You can also check out our Instagram page and Twitter account, both at The New Arab Voice, for additional content. We also have a weekly newsletter, which you can sign up for. Find the link in the show notes. You can subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode, and you can also rate and review, which helps us spread the word. From all of us at The New Arab We wish you a happy Christmas, holidays and New Year. Don't forget to follow The New Arab on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram for all the latest news, analysis and opinions from the region. (laughs) 